I'm Laura. Um, I'm a third year uh, computer science and software engineering student, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for you guys today. Um, you can follow along in your handouts on the second page or in your own Bibles if you prefer. Um, the passage for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and so we've, we've been following um, the book of Mark so far in public meetings, but um, for the rest of the semester, we're going to switch to um, the latter half of 1 Corinthians instead. Um, so just a bit of context, this is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and he addresses some issues they have there in this letter. So let's have a look at chapter 11. It's a bit long, so please bear with me. Verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is, it is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if, it is a, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever, uh, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is an, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you, eat, when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. The American author David Foster Wallace tells the story of uh, two young fish swimming along. And uh, as they're swimming, they happen to meet an older fish who's swimming in the opposite direction. And he nods at them and he says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And they swim on for a little bit and then they look at each other and they go, What's water? And Wallace Wallace says that the point is that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones the hardest to see and talk about. Uh, They're just kind of part of our assumptions or part of our culture. Uh, And not only are they hard to see and talk about, they affect us without even realising. So today we're going to jump back into 1 Corinthians um, and uh, we're going to be there for the rest of the semester. Uh, Last year we uh, started off on 1 Corinthians and the talks are up online if you want to have a listen to them. Uh, But we're jumping today into what I reckon is one of the weirdest and most difficult passages in the Bible. One where Paul tells men not to cover their heads when they pray or prophesy and tells women that they should. I'd love to get to the second half of the passage as well, but I'm not going to have much time to do it. I'm just going to touch on it. But I reckon the first half of the passage raises an enormous number of questions for us. And rather than just sort of me telling you what I think the questions are, I thought I'd give you a chance to talk to each other about what questions it raises for you. So why don't you take a moment, turn to the person next to you, and uh, tell them, if you had a chance to ask the Apostle Paul about this passage, what questions would you ask him? probably do for the moment. 
let's do a bit of crowdsourcing. Um, what do you reckon? Uh, what questions does it raise for you? Sing out. What's that? Why is woman created for man? Yeah, great question. Yep. Yeah. What's wrong with long hair? What's wrong with long hair? <laughs> yep. What's the stuff about um, in verse 10 about the angels? Yeah, what's with the angels? <laughs> yep. Yeah, is shaving your head really that bad? Mm. Yep. What was the culture like back then? Oh, that's a great question. What was the culture like back then? That's an excellent question. Yep. A hat's unholy. A hat's unholy, yes. Yes. But why is this passage so difficult for us to understand? Because Paul doesn't seem to think that his readers should find it difficult to understand. Uh, he seems to think it should be quite straightforward. Why is it so difficult to understand? Well, because of the water. Uh, we have our assumptions about how culture works and we just assume certain things. Um, and we don't even realise that they affect our reading of the text. Um, we don't even realise that they're affecting our behaviour. Just like the Corinthians seem to have assumptions and ways of doing things that they haven't even uh, realised, perhaps, are affecting their behaviour. And in some ways, there are some things about it that Paul doesn't seem to feel the need to explain because he just assumes that they know it, that what he's saying will be perfectly clear. But we're immersed in a different culture that lots of the time we don't even see. And we kind of need someone outside our culture to be able to look in and comment on it. Someone who's shaped by a different culture. And the best person to do that, of course, is God, who's outside of human culture, who sees what's actually going on and is able to open our eyes to, to the water. And fortunately, that is exactly what God has done in his word. But it does take a bit of work for us to be able to see the cultural water that the Corinthians are swimming in and the cultural water that we're in. So how do we go about doing that? Uh, well, one thing to do is to ask ourselves, what is the context? What did it mean in a Corinthian culture for a man to cover his head to pray or prophesy? What did it mean for a woman not to cover hers? And what's the literary context? What light does the rest of 1 Corinthians shine on this particular passage? And then what is the church context? What's going on specifically in this church that might be behind this passage? Well, if we start with the last one first, if we go back and read 1 Corinthians, we discover that Paul has been tackling divisions in the church. Uh, he says in the first chapter that people have been breaking into factions. So he says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. 
And Paul is very concerned about these divisions, but he's even more concerned about the attitude that's going on behind them. There seems to be this attitude of wanting to look impressive, to big note yourself. And so the Corinthians are sort of allying themselves with these different leaders. It's not that the leaders are actually divided. Uh, they're, they're all on the same page about the gospel. But the Corinthians are trying to boast about themselves by saying, oh, I'm one of Peter's followers, and I'm one of Paul's followers. And throughout the letter, Paul is constantly trying to combat this attitude of wanting to big note themselves by pointing to Jesus, um, particularly pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. He didn't make... Uh, he wasn't about sort of um, getting everyone else to serve him. He was about serving others. He humbled himself for us, while the Corinthians are sort of puffing themselves up. So that's something of the church context. Um, and in the literary context, we see that in the previous chapter, he's just finished by urging them to think of others ahead of themselves. So he says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So he's trying to uh, get them to stop thinking about themselves and do what Jesus did and think of other people. What effect do they have on others? He starts off this chapter by praising them for holding on to the traditions that he passed on to them. Uh, and that, in the context, seems to be that he's thrilled to bits that men and women are praying and prophesying together in church. It's worth um, asking ourselves, what does prophesying mean here? Uh, and when you read through Paul's letters, you discover it doesn't mean predicting the future, nor does it seem to mean authoritative teaching, like what I'm doing now or like what your pastor might do on a Sunday morning. It seems to be something more like what we might do in our Bible study groups. Something along the lines of uh, more sort of application of teaching than the teaching itself. Something like, um, mm, okay, so given that this is what the Bible says, I reckon this is what God wants us to do. Uh, so it's that kind of thing. We mostly do that in our small group Bible studies, I guess, rather than the main kind of meeting, like a public meeting. I presume it's probably fairly similar in your church. But the Corinthians, and it seems like most of the early church did the same thing, they actually do it in the main gathering. They have someone do the teaching, uh, and then two or three men and women would get up and talk about how you could apply it, some reflections on uh, the implications of it. And Paul is stoked that they're doing that. Uh, he thinks that's terrific. That's a great tradition to hold on to. But he's not thrilled about the way they're doing it. And that kind of brings us to the cultural context. Uh, what do we know about Corinth in Paul's time that might be relevant to this? Uh, well, the first thing to realise is that although Corinth was one of the major cities of Greece, 
at the time that Paul's writing, it's not actually Greek. So Rome had defeated Corinth about 100 years earlier, and they refounded Corinth as a Roman colony. Though many of the people in the city were ethnically Greek, they were actually also Roman citizens, unlike most of the other Greeks, and they were proud of it. And this kind of feeds into the problem that we've got in the Corinthian church, the problem of pride. But here's the interesting bit of information, the critical bit of cultural information. Uh, When Greek men offered sacrifices in their temples, they didn't cover their heads. But Romans did. No one really knows why. Uh, In fact, even the Romans don't seem to have known why. They just say that it was a tradition that had been passed on to them by Aeneas, the sort of mythological progenitor of the Romans. But here's a picture of uh, Caesar Augustus, who's dressed for his role as the high priest, Pontifex Maximus, and he has his head covered, as a Roman man would do. So the question then is, well, in that context where Roman men cover their heads to pray or prophesy, uh, sorry, where they cover their heads to sacrifice, what would it mean for a Roman man to stand up in church to pray or prophesy with his head covered? My guess is it means something like, look at me, I'm a Roman doing important spiritual things. And it's kind of the problem the Corinthians have had all the way through, that it's sort of about big-noting yourself, about taking pride in yourself and what you're doing. They seem to have just adopted, I don't know if it's thinkingly or unthinkingly, the practices of their surrounding culture. But the practices are based around pride. And Paul wants them to see that that cultural practice is inappropriate for Christians. Why? Well, because he says in verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. What does he mean by that? I mean, there's lots of things that head could mean, uh, whether it's the boss uh, in charge, the head honcho, that kind of thing. But when you look at the passage it doesn't seem to be quite talking like that. He's talking about, if you look at verse 3, unified pairs. So Christ and man, man and woman, God and Christ. And in the context where he's talking about physical heads, I suspect he's thinking of head and body, a united pair that can't be separated. Now, he talks in a similar way in Ephesians 5, where he says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And he explains that the head's role is to feed and care for the body. That's Your head is where the food goes in, and it looks around to see uh, the body and how it needs looking after. And the body's role is to honour the head. It lifts the head up, holds it up. Um, It glorifies it. So for a Corinthian man to stand up in church with his head covered dishonours his head, Christ. Because instead of pointing to Christ, which is what praying and prophesying should be about, 
by covering his head, he's pointing to himself. He's saying, look at me, instead of look at Jesus. And it's just kind of what everyone does in that culture. But it's big noting yourself and dishonouring Christ. So Paul says, don't do it, blokes. Don't cover your heads. That signals the wrong thing. But then you might think, well, okay, if men are supposed to uh, not cover their heads when praying or prophesying, then perhaps women shouldn't cover their heads either. After all, we're all equal, aren't we? Um, Made in the image of God, equal in Christ. But Paul goes on to say, actually, that would be a mistake for women to uncover their heads. Because in that culture, a woman uncovering her head sends a very particular signal, a very different one from a man uncovering his head. Because in Roman culture, adult women either covered their heads with their pallas, that is the shawl that they had around their necks, they would pull it up like the woman on the left here, Uh, or they tied up their hair with a woolen band called a vita, like the woman on the right. Now, why would you do that, and why would that be a big thing for Paul? Well, it's because in that culture, uh, particularly in that culture, hair is beautiful. A woman's hair, her long flowing hair, is stunning. Like Paul says in verse 13, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair which in that culture uh, is about looking effeminate, well, that's a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. So if her hair is her glory, that is, it's what makes her look beautiful and attractive, why would you want to cover it up? (coughs) And I think the answer, (coughs) certainly the answer the Romans gave, is that it's out of modesty. We find that a little bit hard to understand because we as a culture struggle with the idea of modesty and we struggle with the idea of something being precious. Our culture thinks that if you're not sharing the most intimate parts of yourself in the most uninhibited possible ways, then you must be uptight and sexually repressed and probably sexually oppressed. People laugh at virgins. They make jokes about them, make movies about it. Because it doesn't seem to have occurred to them that our bodies might be something precious, something that you don't just put out there for everyone to drool over. We understand that to some extent with certain parts of our bodies, and in this culture it applies to hair as well. So uh, There are other cultures like that too. I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife Shelley and I are friends with an Iranian family, and... Um, One day the wife, I'll call her Esther, came to have afternoon tea at our place with Shelley. She didn't know that I was in the house, so she just slipped off her headscarf, um, just put it down on her shoulders, which is what you would normally do as a woman when you're meeting with other women. But when I walked out of the study, she quickly slipped it back up again. She didn't make a big fuss about it, but to her, hair is precious. It's not something for other men, it's for her husband. It's something beautiful. 
Now, you might think that's a bit weird, and um, don't get me wrong, I'm not arguing that women here today in Perth should wear head coverings, because that actually wouldn't signify the same thing that it did in Corinth. But in Roman culture, for a woman to have her hair out and flowing, that was not a normal thing to do. That was a thing that prostitutes did. They would have their hair out so that they looked attractive. And if a prostitute was caught, she'd have her hair cut off or shaved as a punishment. Which I think is why Paul says in verse 6, if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. See, a woman, in, in Corinth, a woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered is kind of the cultural equivalent of coming to church in your sort of thigh-high boots and miniskirt and crop top. It sends a particular signal and not a good one. In Corinth, for a woman to have her hair out and flowing is to look like a prostitute. And in doing that, she doesn't bring honour to her husband. She dishonours him. She's putting on a show for the other guys. Uh, And I think that helps us to make sense of verse 7, that a man ought not to cover his head because he's the image and glory of God. That is, men are supposed to display how glorious God is, uh, not how glorious they are. They're not supposed to be pointing to themselves. They're supposed to be pointing to Jesus. Paul's not saying that women don't display the glory of God. They do, but particularly for a wife, uh, she's the glory of her husband. When people look at her, their reaction should be, wow, he must be pretty awesome to end up with a woman like that. Paul's not saying that in the sort of shallow materialistic way that we kind of have, uh, which is uh, like, whoa, check out that shit. She is so hot, that dude has done really well to have her as his girlfriend. No, Paul's saying that what matters is not hotness, but godliness. So, quote Proverbs 31, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So you read Proverbs 31, it's all about this uh, woman, this wife of noble character, who is not some helpless, subservient weakling who needs her man to do everything. No, you read the chapter and she's actually a business manager, she's trading shares, she's buying and selling property, Uh, she's doing the farming, managing the servants, she's strong, she's kind, she's dignified and wise. Uh, Her family and neighbours respect her. And because of that, uh, we're told in verse 23 of that chapter, her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. I think that's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says that a wife is the glory of her husband. A woman is the glory of man. She actually brings glory to him. So in verse 8, he points us back to Genesis 2 to show us that this relational thing he's talking about, the woman being the glory of the man, is not actually something cultural. Uh, The expression of it might be about hair length and covering hair, but the thing behind it is actually the way God has made us as humans. So in Genesis 2, God 
creates Adam and then he declares that it's not good for the man to be alone. So he creates a suitable helper for him from one of his ribs. He creates a woman. That's what Paul means by saying a man is not from woman, but woman from the man. That's what Genesis 2 says. And she's made for him, to be a helper for him. She brings glory to her husband by being someone who's uniquely fitted to work with him, filling the earth and subduing it. Not by taking over from him, but by uh, working alongside him. Not taking over his authority, but being under it. And as we'll find out in uh, chapter 14 in a few weeks, that's why Paul wants the men to take responsibility for authoritative teaching from God's word. It's not that he thinks men are more competent than women. (laughs) We're certainly not, fellas. (laughs) But it's because he wants the church to reflect the relationships that God has made for us by men taking responsibility for feeding the women with God's word when they're together, men and women. And for the women to honour the men by encouraging them to do that. And then he wants them to chew over together God's word as they pray and prophesy. But just in case anyone thinks Paul is saying that women are dependent on men, but men are independent of women, which is kind of how the Romans thought, Blokes could do whatever they liked, but women were uh, under, uh, under total control. He reminds them in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. That is, men and women are both from God, both different from each other, with different roles, but not independent of each other, actually dependent on one another. And men and women being treated differently might make some of us feel uncomfortable. Sort of feel like surely everyone should be treated the same. But I want to suggest that that's actually the 21st century Western individualist water that we're swimming in. We've kind of inherited from Christianity this truth that all humans are equally valuable. But we've rejected the foundation that we're equal because we're made in the image of God. And so we've got this problem where we want to uphold the truth that we're equally valuable while ignoring the fact that that comes from our creator. So we try to maintain it by saying everyone should be treated identically. But if you stop and think about it for a moment, the idea of treating everyone identically is crazy. (laughs) It's impossible. Uh, It doesn't work, and no one actually does it. So in your family, you don't behave the same way towards your brothers as you do towards your sisters. You don't treat your lecturers the same way you treat your fellow students. And we don't treat men the same way as we treat women. We treat them as equally valuable, but that doesn't mean we treat them identically. So we're all made in the image of God. Uh, And when it comes to salvation, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, let me check this is working. Oh, sorry. 
<laughs> oh, he probably can't read it anyway. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That is, when it comes to salvation, anyone who believes is saved. There's no difference between the sexes or races or whether you're slave or free. But at the same time, Paul does behave differently around Jews than he does around Gentiles. He does treat them differently. Some of his commands are quite different between slaves and masters, between men and women. Why is that? Well, it's because we're not all isolated, identical individuals. We are all equally made in the image of God. And Christian believers are equally being remade in the likeness of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we're clones, which is kind of how the Western world wants to think of us. We're all kind of individual, uh, isolated people with no race or gender or anything like that. All with identical roles. But that's not how God sees things. Equally valuable, but different. Made to be in relationship. That's part of the beauty of the new community that he's creating. And I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at in verse 10 with that funny bit about the angels. That it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Or probably more literally, she ought to have an authority over her head. He's talking about the covering over her head. Because of the angels. I think he's saying that by women not drawing attention to themselves, by uncovering their heads, especially married women, by covering their heads, having their hair up, that shows how the good relations that God made us for are actually being restored in Christ. That the women are not trying to assert their power through their sexual attractiveness over the men, just as the men shouldn't be asserting their status and power by covering their heads. And that is a big deal, he's saying. That's of cosmic significance. It's nothing less than the restoration of humanity in Christ. And it's something so huge that even the angels look on in awe. It's cosmic. Which raises the question, how do you treat your fellow Christians? How do you treat men and women, husbands and wives, uh, the other people in CU or your church? Is your thinking shaped by Jesus? Or is it just kind of unthinkingly shaped by your culture? Because as Christians, we can't just simply accept whatever human culture comes up with. Because human cultures are sinful. We're in those cultures, and there are some good things and some bad things about them. But we need to think them through in the light of the gospel. What does the Bible teach us about what God is doing, who God is, what he's like, who we are? the relationships that we're in. He doesn't remove us from our communities, but he is in the business of creating us in a new community, one that's not 
controlled by the cultures of this world, but where the cultures of this world are transformed by the culture of the kingdom. One where we don't just assert our rights. Well, I can cover my head if I want to. I can look impressive. Not one where we say, I can just, well, I can dress however I like and I don't have to think about other people. No, Paul wants us to do more than that. He wants us to be like Christ, to think about others and how we can serve them, to put their needs ahead of our own. God's actually in the business of creating a whole new community, uh, one where there's not a battle between the sexes with each of us trying to assert dominance over the other, but one where we're in right relationships where the men are taking responsibility for leadership and where the women are encouraging them in doing that, particularly when it comes to feeding each other on the word. It's not a battle between the sexes, but a relationship of harmony and love. It's a similar thing in the second half of the chapter, which we won't get to. But there's sort of a battle going on between those who have money to pig out on food and those who don't. And Paul is wanting something entirely different from that. One where the rich think about others and are generous towards them. Where they give themselves for others the way Christ gave himself for them. That's what actually Christian community is supposed to be like. That's what the church is supposed to be like. And we're a long way from perfect in that, a very long way. Uh, we've got all sorts of problems, just like the Corinthians did. But the way forward is not to break into factions aligned with different worldly ways of thinking, but to remember our unity in Christ, who died for us, to remember that he's our head, we're his body, and to shape our hearts and minds and actions around that reality, that culture, that community, uh, as we engage with the cultures and communities of our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who gave himself up for us, uh, who uh, didn't consider equality with you something to be grasped, but actually made himself nothing in service of us. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about how we live with each other um, to have the same attitude there, to think about what is best for others rather than trying to big note ourselves. We pray particularly that you'd help us as men and women uh, to think about how we can relate well in a way that uh, reflects how you've made us and that brings honour and glory uh, to you and to each other. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've got a, a little bit of time, so does anyone want to ask questions? Just quickly. Just grab a passage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of understanding the cultural context, particularly that it's written into. Yeah. It seems to be quite important to understanding 
Yeah. Do you have suggestions for, like, if we come across passages like this in our personal Bible reading, how we are figuring out that cultural context? Yeah, so... Yeah, so it is about looking at the context, I think. So you might need to do some background research, maybe grab a commentary, find out what other people have uh, thought about it. Uh, They might have some insights into the culture that we don't have. I should say, if you need to go to your class, go. Don't, don't feel like you need to hang around. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be the first place to start, I think. Yeah. Any other questions? No? I've got one. Yeah, I'll you can. Think about how to phrase it. Um, yeah. It says in First Corinthians seven. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reminded of this because it's coming from the past before. I didn't, yeah. didn't really know how to think about it, but um, it's where Paul um, is giving commands from the Lord, and he says, "I say this, um, but it's not a command from the Lord." Mm-hmm. How do we know in the Bible where this is just a command that Paul thinks is a good idea, yeah. or if it's a command from God? Yeah, correct question. So I think when he says that in First Corinthians seven, uh, he's not saying that. Uh, his command that he gives when he says, uh, you know, I, not the Lord, he's not saying that that's not authoritative. He expects them to obey it, to live in line with it. What he means when he says, I give, uh, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, is that he's got a direct quote from Jesus that he can point to. Yeah. Um, so he's literally quoting Jesus at that point. Uh, but he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't mean that the other stuff he says is not authoritative. He still has authority as God's apostle, as Jesus' apostle to yeah. teach. Should we treat both commands as equally authoritative? Yeah, no. yeah, that's right. So what he's doing is not saying this command's more authoritative than this one. He's saying this one's a quote from Jesus, this one isn't. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. And uh, finish this, this um, I encourage you to think about uh, prophesying to each other um, about how we can encourage one another as men and women.